Welcome to Podcast Against Antisemitism, the show that takes a deep dive into the world's oldest hatred. I'm Ellie, your host, and you can join us for new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe now at antisemitism.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a show. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel and please consider leaving us a nice review so we can grow our listenership. It makes a big difference. My guest today is David Hirsch, an expert in anti-Semitism and the senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths University. Professor Hirsch is the author of the book Contemporary Left Antisemitism and the founder of the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism. He has written extensively about modern antisemitism and anti-Zionism and is currently at the centre of an investigation by Goldsmith after he was ridiculously and offensively labelled as a far-right white supremacist by Goldsmith's then student union president. Thank you for being here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. So let's 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 talk about your book, um, Contemporary Left Antisemitism. It was published in in 2017 and looks at the manifestations of antisemitism commonplace on the left, which often involves the use of Israel as a means of spreading antisemitism. What made you uh, decide to write the book? Oh wow, the book was um, the book took me a very long time to write. I mean, I I was pulled into these issues in. 2005, really, um, at the time of the campaign to boycott Israel, uh, and especially Israeli academia. And um, I wanted to put out a book fairly quickly (laughs) after that, I don't know, within the next few years after that anyway. And I found that very difficult for two reasons, I think. One was that um, I was... um, there was a lot of heat really for, for, for my work um, and for what I was doing. And um, I found it very difficult to be, well, kind of recognized really as a, as a proper academic. Um, and I found it difficult to get things published. And also I believe that um, the hostility that I experienced from my peers really, from other academics, and from a wider layer of people too, I think it um, had some effect in kind of hurting my own self-confidence and my own ability to write. So it took a very long time for me to feel that I was able to do it and for me to actually be able to do it and for me to get it published. I think it took, well, what, 2017 is uh, 12 years after 2005. Um I mean that that's that sounds really hard to be honest. Um, how do you feel now in terms of your your status among your peers? Um, well, I think that um, uh, I think it's funny because I watch other people's experience, and I think the experiences really I recognise the experience and the experiences that there are Jewish people who feel at home in some kind of space as I felt at home in a sociology department, I was very proud to be in Goldsmith Sociology. I was, uh, I remember looking around the room during department meetings and thinking, wow, I'm one of these people and being kind of almost in awe of it. And then um, what happened was that uh, I made some straightforward arguments against the uh, campaign to boycott Israel, Israeli academia in particular, and against anti-Semitism. And then suddenly I was transformed 
um, from being one of those people to being not one of those people. And I was treated broadly um, in academia and within the discipline as uh, not a sociologist, but uh, a Zionist sociologist. And in, in that vocabulary, Zionist means racist. <laughs> so um, yeah. it's, it's um, I mean, and, and it's very interesting to me that, that it, it's an experience I've seen happen again and again to people in the Labour Party, to people on the left of the Labour Party, uh, and to people in other spheres, really, um, that they thought that they were at home. They thought that they were one of those people, and then they kind of discovered that they weren't, or at least that their that their position of being at home was challenged. Um, and um, it's it's hard when that happens. And I, I kind of sometimes think it's, that this might be a sort of universal story of anti-Semitism or maybe even of racism and, and exclusion in general, although I suspect it isn't because I think plenty of Jews in the past and actually plenty of other people who suffer racism never thought they were at home. <laughs> so there's not that feeling of being suddenly uh, excluded. Um, so maybe in a sense that particular feeling is a comes from a kind of relative privilege that that I did think I was at home and then I found that I wasn't. That's that's interesting because I think we hear a lot about Jewish university students feeling ostracized once they are, I suppose, outed as, as a Zionist or something. But we rarely hear about it um, from Jewish lecturers and staff members at universities. Do you think it's because it, it happens less or there's more of a taboo around it or why do you think that might be? Um, no, I don't think it happens less. I think it's the same issue. I think, um, so a lot of, uh, lecturers are, you know, they worry about their reputation and their career and talking about contemporary antisemitism and in particular talking about their own <laughs> exclusion, um, doesn't help their career. So lots and lots of Jewish academics, focus on on their own work you know whatever it might be maths or uh even in jewish studies they focus on you know 19th century yiddish literature or whatever it is and they keep out of the sort of ostensibly political discussions about contemporary anti-semitism so one of the effects of anti-semitism on campus i think both for students and for for um, academics is a uh, it, it shuts your mouth. It, it makes you feel quite unable and unwilling to speak um, and to say what you think. Um, and actually also to work in that area, actually both for, also for academics and for students. Uh, students need to think carefully before they write an essay that, that, that might, you know, be on this topic or, or an adjacent topic. And academics need to think carefully if they want to uh, teach on it or to publish on it, um, because, uh, you know, academic careers are very tough already. And the last thing people need is to have their reputation transformed into, you know, quote, supporter of apartheid or uh, supporter of colonialism or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um your university, Goldsmiths University, recently launched an inquiry into anti-Semitism at the university. And this investigation um, 
as a, as a whole began after you were smeared as a far right white supremacist by its then student union president. Um, where did that slur come from? And what can you tell us about the investigation and how it relates to you? Well, I can talk to you about the incident that you refer to. Um, I don't know um, in what way that incident led to the inquiry or, or didn't lead to the inquiry. So I can't really say much about how they are linked. Um, but let me begin by talking, explaining that incident. Um, it really came out of discussions about um, what is called decolonization of the curriculum. And um, um, I think, so, so there's a kind of official university endorsed campaign to quote, decolonize the curriculum. And the idea is that universities like any other institution that have been going in Britain for some time uh, have a sort of tradition that goes back to colonial times and ways of thinking that perhaps go back to colonial times and um, that uh, we should be uh, careful and uh, mindful um, to break from those colonialist traditions. Now, that's fine by me. I'm, you know, all in favour of that. There's a problem, I think, when, and, and this is more general than these particular campaigns and policies, the problem is when the value of uh, decolonization or uh, anti-imperialism is separated from other left-wing and democratic values um, or other liberal values too. Um, so there are lots of left and liberal and democratic values, right? One of them is opposing colonialism, um, but there are many others. There's the rule of law and there's freedom of speech and there is uh, women's equality and there's lesbian and gay equality and there's... Um, <clears throat> uh equality from poverty and you know one could list many many values that are values of the left and actually values of liberals um what has happened sometimes is that the specific value of anti-imperialism or anti-colonialism becomes a kind of single overriding value and it it's made itself into an absolute so there's not a number of values that sit along side each other and uh, have to be taken together but there's this one value which is an absolute and every other value is subordinated to it and you can see um how for example the value of um uh anti-imperialism um might interact with the value of democracy um in a, in a whole number of quite complicated ways or the value of uh, freedom or um, the rule of law, for example, or the value of women's rights. Um, and that's pretty straightforward, I think. And in this particular case, um, I was very mindful at the time that uh, um, there's a campaign which is strong at Goldsmiths, but in many other places and many other universities to designate Israel as colonial as a colonialist uh, enterprise um, and actually like 
you know, there are some senses in which it might be, but um, the raising of the value of anti-colonialism to an absolute tends to raise Zionism as colonialism to become an absolute. <laughs> Actually, it's a long discussion that one could have because one, one can look at the worldview of relating colonialism and anti-colonialism to the other values, but then how one moves from there to centering Israel as the kind of central and symbolic uh, issue is, is another story. So you can't explain it just by saying that, um, you know, the world is divided into imperialist and anti-imperialist, black and white, and, and that becomes over overriding that still doesn't tell you why Israel gets um, centred, which is a problem because then you kind of have to explain anti-Semitism in relation to pre-existing anti-Semitism. Anyway, that's a distraction. The point being that so long as Israel is designated as colonialist, then uh, as an absolute, then... Um, uh, campaigns of decolonization will become or have the potential to become campaigns of designization. And yeah. a campaign of designization, which would be uh, endorsed uh, by the authorities at a, in an institution, um, would feel threatening to me. Um, there are, you know, student groups and postgrads who, who are going through uh, reading lists and um, uh singling out courses and authors who are not considered to be um, anti-colonial. And um, I wouldn't want to see that happening with um, people who are designated Zionists and therefore designated racist and therefore designated as being unsuitable for inclusion. I mean, one could imagine, I mean, it sounds bizarre and it probably is, but one could imagine somebody saying that, you know, Albert Einstein is a Zionist and therefore his work shouldn't be taught on campus right now that's a kind of extreme example but there are many extreme <laughs> things going on so um a little bit out of context um i quote i tweeted um in response to somebody that there is an anti-semitic edge to um these official campaigns of decolonization of the curriculum and uh, for the reasons that I just gave, I think that's kind of clearly true <laughs> that something which will be seen to legitimize campaigns of going through uh, reading lists and taking out the Zionists, I think certainly might become anti-Semitic. So I said there are there is an anti-Semitic edge to these campaigns of decolonization. And somebody else replied, I think probably the tweeter themselves replied, uh, uh, you're a racist. <laughs> like if you oppose campaigns of decolonization, you're a racist. And then uh, the uh, president of our students' union piled in and said, uh, David Hirsch is a, a, a far-right white supremacist, which is more than a racist, actually. A far-right white supremacist sounds to me like a uh, Nazi, actually. Um, and... Um, uh, that's, I think, evidently an anti-Semitic statement um, to wrongly <laughs> single out, you know, the person at Goldsmiths who's doing the most work against anti-Semitism 
and who's doing that work in a context of being against racism and in a context which sees anti work against anti-Semitism alongside work against other structures of oppression, to single that person out and denounce him as a Nazi is, is anti-Semitic. And um, people shouldn't need to ask why, but if they ask why, I would say because um, given that there's like zero truth in it, <laughs> then... Um, uh, you know, my, I mean, my mum was born in Nazi Germany, right? And, you know, huge amounts, huge proportion of her family was killed by the Nazis. And um, to then sort of say that I'm a, a Nazi is is egregious, I think. It, it has a particular edge when mobilised against Jews. Um, I could say more about that, but, but it seems to me that, that that's true um i wrote an email or two i think to the college and i said what are you going to do about this and i think from memory i think they said well are you, are you making a a um a formal complaint and i said no i'm I, i'm not going to take responsibility for this this is your problem <laughs> you know the person elected to speak for your students has said this anti-Semitic thing about one of your members of staff and what are you going to do about it? And, uh, of course, it's quite difficult for them to know what to do about it. And I don't quite know what they did about it, but I think that what happened was that they approached the student union and uh, the person involved uh, got to hear about it and um, was furious and uh, said that... that um, this was a witch hunt against her and it was uh, a racist witch hunt. And um, she doubled down on uh, the allegations that she'd made against me. And then uh, my trade union branch, my UCU branch, um, kind of piled in and offered full support and solidarity to um, the president of the students union in saying that. So, what we had was a situation where the person who's elected and paid to be the voice of our students and the people who are elected and paid to be the voice of me and my colleagues were agreeing that um, David Hirsch is a far-right white supremacist. Um, and I, I think, like, you might say that's a little bit formal, right? Because you might say, well, everybody knows that the president of the union and the union branch... Uh, don't speak for anybody and that they are elected, you know, by a minority and all the rest of it. Well, that's true. But formally, they speak for everybody at the college. And the fact that nobody's jumping up and down trying to get that fixed is, uh, uh, tells you something about the culture at the college. Um, in fact, what happened was even stranger because I did make a fuss within my department, um, within my department uh, union group. I'm a member of the union. And actually, there was a little bit of uh, sympathy and warmth and support. I mean, there's always a little bit. Like There are always people who are solid. It's not unanimous uh, by any means. But there was some support. And, and um, the reps in the department said, well, we'll go and uh, talk to the union branch and see if we get this fixed. <clears throat> and so then there followed, a, a, I don't know, a period, a week or two weeks or something, where there was a fight going on 
about whether it was legitimate to say David Hirsch is a far-right white supremacist or not. <clears throat> and just the fact that there's a fight going on between my colleagues about that is already kind of utterly humiliating. <clears throat> and even more humiliating is that the, my uh, department colleagues in the union lost and uh, the union uh, stood firm and refused to do anything about it. And then um, people said, well, we should write a formal letter to the union branch or we should make it public. Um, and some people went away to try and draft a letter and they couldn't do it. <laughs> Nothing happened, right? Uh, and presumably they couldn't come up with a form of words uh, to say that it's, that, you know, we stand by David Hirsch, he's not a Nazi and he's a kind of vaguely decent teacher. They couldn't find a form of words to say that. Uh, and then they just dropped it and it, and it, you know, that was the end of that really. Um, and so when I'm at a union meeting now, I'm sitting there thinking the official position of this branch is that I'm a Nazi. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of what they call a hostile environment, I think. Yeah, I mean, to say the least, if you don't mind my asking, uh, what sort of impact does this whole thing have on, on your mental health? Well, um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, really. I mean, I, I don't, I never have particularly wanted to, I never have really you know, discuss personal issues and how and how it impacts upon me personally. But I mean, evidently, it must and, and it must have done. And I've been dealing with this stuff for 20 years now for the, you know, the kind of main part of my adult life and the main part of my career as an adult. And um, sometimes it's really hard. Um, so uh, <laughs> and you know I don't like to blame whatever neuroses I have on anti-semitism but that's part of the issue isn't it that with all racism nobody knows what component of the crap they get they can actually blame <laughs> on, um, on on what's been going on um, and as I said earlier on you know I was finding it very difficult to write and to produce and to be an academic and then what, what happens is you get, you know, knocked back by peer reviewers uh, who say, you know, this isn't really academic. This is propaganda for Israel. And uh, when that's happened, it then becomes much harder to write because <laughs> you don't have a warm academic community around you, encouraging you and saying, oh, wow, this is really interesting. You're really clever and blah, blah, blah. You have people around you saying you're a fake you know, hashtag it was a scam, right? The whole of my career, hashtag it was a scam. And uh, people need an academic community around them for a reason, right? We have universities for a reason. <laughs> and that's part of the reason. Um, look, of course, uh, the, the, it's complicated because like I can go and speak at universities all over the world and I have done. And I, you know, I can walk onto campus, I don't know, in America or in like many, many places in Germany. And people go, oh, wow, you know, it's David Hirsch. We love your work. We think you're really cool. And they call me professor, which I'm not <laughs> because uh, <laughs> because I've never been promoted anywhere near it. Um, but they assume that I am because they, you know, they rate what I do. Um, wow. And so, you know, 
sometimes I get treated with that kind of great respect. And then sometimes I get treated with nothing but contempt. Um, and, uh, you know, that might be a kind of universal for, for academics, but it's worse. I think it's worse um, in this context. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've gone through a hell of a lot. Um, in, in addition to this investigation to your case, as mentioned before, Goldsmith is also doing a wider investigation into anti-Semitism at the university. What are you hoping uh, you to see from this investigation? So the, the investigation isn't into my case, um, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, the investigation is an investigation into... Um, uh, anti-Semitism and I think um, uh, institutional anti-Semitism at Goldsmiths, which is really interesting. I mean, it's it's a real surprise. Um, <laughs> like I could tell you a story about SOAS, um, which I will just tell you the, the the kind of punchline of really, which is that I was uh, asked uh, a few years ago to um, chair a, a, a an appeals panel at SOAS, and uh, the the appeal was over a case of, of somebody alleging institutional anti-Semitism and the panel said that it hasn't been investigated and it should be investigated and it laid down some very clear ways in which it should be investigated. And uh, so us just ignored, completely ignored the um, uh, the decision of its own appeals panel, just ignored it. Um, and, yeah. and uh, you know, I kind of pushed them and I hinted and I nudged and then after a long time, I kind of went public and said, so us isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And then they uh, put up a thing online saying um, uh, David Hirsch is in violation of his contract and has been, uh, uh, you know, violated his, his duty to be, um, what's it called? Secrecy, um, <laughs> confidentiality. Uh, and they tried to kind of bully me to shut up, really. Um, I said, what contract? I haven't signed a contract. And they said, oh, oh, well, it must be an implied contract. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, it took me a, a lot of struggle to get them to take that basically defamatory thing down off the website. And they also said, if I mention it again in public, then they'll put it back up. So we'll see what happens after this discussion. <laughs> um, point being that, you know, SOAS absolutely stubbornly refused to even contemplate the idea that it had a problem. Um, and Goldsmiths is doing the opposite. Um, you know, we've seen barristers, barrister-led inquiries that have had good results, and we've seen barrister-led inquiries that have had not so good results. So a lot depends on the barrister. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what evidence emerges. We'll see what, uh, you know, what the report says. Um, I hope uh, that people who have had experience of anti-Semitism at Goldsmiths uh, make submissions. I hope that people, even if they can't kind of, <clears throat> I mean, of course, you know, details of particular things that have happened are really important. Uh, but, you know, people are aware anyway of the culture and the way it feels to be a Jewish person um, on campus. And they should write about that. They should remember it and describe it. Um, interestingly, I don't think, you know, there haven't been many complaints of anti-Semitism at Goldsmiths. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is there are not many Jews at Goldsmiths. And it seems to me there's a reason for that too, which is that, uh, Jews, unless they are from a particular kind of anti-Zionist political tradition, 
um, probably know, at least think they know by reputation in advance, not to apply to Goldsmiths. Um, so that's also something that I think the inquiry has to get to grips with, really, is not only what happens at Goldsmiths, but but why and how it has this reputation and what that means about um, the exclusion or a kind of soft exclusion of Jews, Jews not coming anyway. Yeah, I mean... Goldsmiths, Goldsmiths is interesting because while um, its initiative to launch this investigation into anti-Semitism at the university is, is certainly commendable, it also does things like adopting both the IRA definition of anti-Semitism and the Jerusalem Declaration. Uh, it's a document intended to undermine the globally recognized uh, IHRA definition. Why Why have they, and other universities, I suppose, but why have they decided to do this? Why have they decided to do both? And can you explain to our listeners very briefly about why the two are incompatible? Yes. Well, um, <laughs> perhaps we should be a little bit careful and say that we don't know what the intentions of the people who drafted the Jerusalem Declaration were or the people who signed it or whatever. But we we know what, what it does. And actually what the Jerusalem Declaration does is to pick out um, uh, elements of contemporary anti-Semitism. In fact, it picks out some of the most important elements of contemporary anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic discourse, and it treats them in the abstract. So it says, uh, I can't remember the exact wording. For example, it says BDS. And I think, for example, it says, uh, uh, analogies, <laughs> presumably including the Nazi analogy, and it says uh, it's got some wording of sort of intemperate and and extreme speech against Israel. It picks out those things, and it says, in the abstract, in and of themselves, these are not anti-Semitic. And of course, that's true, right? In and of themselves, uh, these things are not anti-Semitic, but in the context in which they actually appear, they are the key elements of anti-Semitism. <laughs> so it, it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of, um, I don't know, it's a kind of bait and switch, really, um, because every academic know and every scholar of racism knows that nothing happens in and of itself. Everything happens in a, in a social context. And the social context in which Israel is, you know, relentlessly denounced as uh, the, uniquely the apartheid state and as central to all racism on the planet and as symbolic of all racism on the planet and as the only state that should be boycotted. Um, there's a social context there. And we also know empirically, not in and of itself, but we know because we've looked and we've experienced it, we know that with that kind of um, uh, context comes anti-Semitism, like like at the kind of anti-Semitism that that everybody can recognise. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that and this you saw this with Corbyn and the Labour Party is that the the anti-Zionists were very kind of careful not to be not to to articulate anti-Semitism in a way that everybody could recognise. But annoyingly for them it leaked, it always leaks around them and sort of comes out. So when they say things that they insist are not anti-Semitic, but only anti-Zionist, 
people who support them and who are influenced by them start saying anti-Semitic things. And that must be really annoying for them, poor things. Um, <laughs> but it's one of the pieces of evidence that, that um, you know, anti-Zionism always uh, brings that kind of explicit anti-Semitism with it. Um, I mean, there are other uh, elements to the argument, of course. So um, the Jerusalem Declaration abstracts the key elements of rhetoric and it says in the abstract they're not anti-Semitic and it doesn't say anything about uh, whether they're anti-Semitic in context. And of course, Ira, interestingly, does the opposite. Ira says um, that uh, uh, anti-Zionist anti-Semitism is significant and it's real and it generally looks like this and this and this and this. But you should always judge any case in context, right? Because where, whereas it generally looks like this, you have to judge any particular case in context. And then it's very clear that criticism of Israel made in the same way that criticism of other states is made uh, is not anti-Semitic. Right. So Ira actually is very clear about context. And Ira is also very, very tame, right? Ira doesn't designate anything as anti-Semitic. Yeah. <laughs> it just says... There is this kind of anti-Semitism, which is significant. It generally looks like these things. And if you see things that look like these things, then you should make a judgment according to the context about your case. <clears throat> so interestingly, Ira, which is kind of denounced as being vulgar and not academic, is actually much more in keeping with the traditions of uh, anti-racism and the sociology of race and um, the JDA, which is just a sort of abstraction, you know, in, for sure, in the privacy of some academic's brain, uh, BDS might not be anti-Semitic. <laughs> Fine. Uh, they might have all sorts of ways in which in, in, in their brain, uh, in principle, it's not anti-Semitic. But let's look at it in context and let's see how it works. Let's see what it brings with it. Let's see what kind of emotions emerge with it. Let's try to understand why there's a focus um, on Israel and what the focus means. And let's try to understand the effects of such campaigns. And we've seen it, you know, in UCU, in the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, we know um, what happens. And, and, and it's an empirical claim, right? I don't think that BDS is anti-Semitic in and of itself. It's not. But I do think that it's very clear that when you look at any institution or social space in which BDS becomes uh, a legitimate position, you see how it um, uh, relates to anti-Semitism. You see how it um, elicits more anti-Semitism. You see how people who try to create a, an emotional culture such that people want to punish Israelis for the uh, crimes of their state, the, the crimes of their state real and the crimes of their state imagined. Uh, but you need a certain kind of emotional feeling to, to, to really want to punish some, you know, Israeli lecturer who wants to come and join your conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so in all sorts of senses, um, that's what the Jerusalem Declaration does. Um, and I imagine the people who 
adopted the Jerusalem Declaration alongside IRA. I mean, either, you know, the anti-Zionists kind of know perfectly well what it does and they know that it it um, sort of weakens and counteracts IRA. Um, and, um, and I think that underlying the Jerusalem Declaration is a, there's a, there's an allegation against IRA and very often it's explicit. And even when it's not explicit, it's implicit. And the allegation against IRA is that it is an instrument not concerned with anti-Semitism, but actually concerned with protecting, um, Israel. So it's uh, Ira is a, is accused of being a, a sort of ruse, right? A trick uh, foisted upon us by Zionists, uh, which um, designates, you know, legitimate criticism of Israeli human rights abuses as anti-Semitic and therefore silences them and delegitimizes them, and that's what it's really for. Um, and sometimes you say, "All right, well, fine." show me the bit in IRA that does that or that allows that. <laughs> because what I can see in IRA is it says criticism Israel is not anti-Semitic. And by the way, IRA doesn't say that must be in context. It just says it, you know, everything else must be in context in IRA, but but that's not, not contextualized. And people say, well, it's not really there, but but, you know, this is read between the lines or this is how IRA is used. Uh, which is a very strange, both very strange arguments. The between the lines argument is a kind of argument of, of, of Zionist cunning. You know, they're so cunning that they've created this instrument that appears to do one thing but really does another, uh, which is all kind of drawing on tropes of, of um, conspiracy fantasy. Yeah. Or, or it's, um, sorry, it's... Um, uh, but you have to look at the practice, the way it's used. And if it's true, it's not. But if it was true that IRA was used to uh, uh, punish critics of Israel, then um, that would be illegitimate because nothing in IRA allows that. So if somebody was trying to do that, if, some, if you're just a, a person who's critical of Israeli policy or critical of Israeli culture or critical even of Israeli whatever, basic law, whatever you're critical of, if someone tries to use IRA to say that you're anti-Semitic unjustly, then you need IRA, which says criticism is not anti-Semitic in your defense. Yeah. But, so both of those arguments hold no water um, that, you know, read between the lines, it's all there, but it's hidden or uh, look at the way it's really uh, used because it can't be used in that. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's like saying that the law against um, speeding in a, in a built up area can be uh, used uh, against the, the, the Arsenal offside trap. And well, it can't, <laughs> you know, and if somebody tries to do that, then the, there you go. Yeah. Hey, if you want to stay up to date with the fight against anti-Semitism, why not subscribe to Campaign Against Anti-Semitism? Visit antisemitism.org act or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube. I mean, that sort of nicely leads me on to asking you about 
um, the Livingstone formulation. Um, for our listeners who are who are less familiar with this term, could you could you essentially like tell us what it is and what are its roots? Yeah, well, I've just told you what it is. Um, it is specifically. Um, it's a standard response to somebody who raises uh, the issue of anti-Semitism. Somebody who says, oh, look, I think there's anti-Semitism here or I've experienced anti-Semitism in my union or in the Labour Party or <clears throat> or the way uh, Israel is blamed for the murder of George Floyd is anti-Semitic. A standard response to any of that kind of thing is to say, aha, we know what you're really up to, right? You say that you experience anti-Semitism, but really we know that you're engaged in a, in a dishonest uh, campaign to try to silence and delegitimize criticism of Israel. So that's the Livingston formulation. And it's, I mean, it is so ubiquitous, like, and uh, even in parliament the other day, uh, I think it was Crispin Blunt, probably others, just said it baldly um, that, uh, you know, I have to say criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic, but of course nobody says that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. It would be an absurd position. And the point about the Livingston formulation is not Ken Livingston, actually. The point is that whenever somebody raises the issue of anti-Semitism, um, they're accused. There's a sort of really quick counter-accusation of bad faith. So, so there's kind of three stages here, actually, interestingly. People will know about the Macpherson inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And the Macpherson inquiry found that the police investigation of Stephen Lawrence had been uh, messed up because of institutional racism. And the Macpherson inquiry said the um, claims of one of the black victims of that attack, uh, Stephen Lawrence's friend, his claim that it was a racist attack should have been taken seriously. And that didn't mean that the police should have believed him without any evidence or without any investigation. That's not what it meant. What it meant was should have been taken seriously. When he said it was a racist attack, they should have assumed that he was speaking in good faith. So, so, so that was kind of set in stone by the McPherson inquiry. And everybody knows that when somebody makes a, 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 an allegation of racism or when they say they have experienced racism, we should take them seriously. And then institutions should take them seriously and listen to them properly and then investigate. But the Livingston formulation says the opposite. It says when Jews make an allegation or report an experience of anti-Semitism, then they, one should assume that they're lying and one should assume that they're lying for Israel. Yeah. And to be clear... The Livingston formulation doesn't say, well, Jews have got a chip on their shoulder and, you know, they had a hard time with the Holocaust and they tend to see anti-Semitism when it's not there. It doesn't say that. It says they're making it up, that they're, they're pretending to experience anti-Semitism, but their real motive is to silence criticism of Israel. So the third element then is the EHRC report on Labour anti-Semitism which said that the the kind of uh, unthinking counter-allegation um, made towards Jews in the Labour Party, uh, that they are um, faking the anti-Semitism or that they're trying to smear the leader or smear the party uh, for ulterior motives. And the ulterior motive is to... Um, 
delegitimized criticism of Israel. Yeah. Um, the HRC report said that doing that is the key mode of the alienation of Jews. Right? When Jews get up and talk about their experience, and if they are then universally told to shut up because they're lying for uh, uh, social forces that are that are hostile to the party, then they are accused of um, treachery, of betraying the party. They are therefore defined as being rightly outside of the party and therefore as being kind of spies or entryists in the party. And that was the nature of the anti-Semitism that Labour people, Labour Jews experienced, this yeah. kind of relentless allegation that you're you know Louise Elman was called the the right honorable member for Tel Aviv for example that she doesn't belong in the Labour Party that she really belongs somewhere else and she's a uh, 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 representing a foreign power or she's representing the apartheid state or she's representing the Tories or the Trumpists or whatever it may be so first McPherson says respect and treat respectfully somebody who says they've experienced racism then Livingston says, yeah, but not Jews. Because <laughs> if it's Jews talking about anti-Semitism, then quite likely they're going to be involved in a kind of conspiracy to silence criticism of Israel. And then EHRC comes on and says, yes, Jews. Yes, Jews are included. And, um, uh, and not including Jews. In other, way, in other words, assuming that Jews are up to something when they talk about their experience of anti-Semitism is itself unlawful uh, harassment of Jews. Um, and that's what the HRC report said. Well, well, that kind of uh, leads me on to ask you, to what extent is the sort of anti-Semitism denial that was commonplace on the far left under Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as Labour Party leader still prevalent? Would you say that it is uh, still a serious issue in Labour or more widely? Or do you think that it has been relegated to the fringe left since the EHRC report uh, into uh, the party was published? Mm, I think... I think that both are, are right, actually. So I do think that the uh, politics of the front bench, of the leadership, um, of the machine have been pretty well cleaned out of anti-Semitism. Uh, and I don't think Labour is at all anti-Semitic in the sense that it was under Corbyn's leadership. Um, so I think you know, my friends who were sort of the political activists in the Labour Party who who really fought and won against that kind of um, institutional anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Great. Well done. But, <laughs> um, but the Labour Party still sits in a milieu in the kind of broad liberal left in which anti-Semitic ways of thinking are still tolerated and are still considered legitimate and are still fairly widespread, actually. Um, and a lot of the activists have kind of withdrawn from the Labour Party or been kicked out of the Labour Party and are back on campus where they came from in the first place. Um, and the culture of treating Israel as a unique and central and symbolic evil on the planet and everything that flows from that 
is still pretty well alive um, uh, in on campus and in the kind of liberal left more widely. And just to be clear, I'm not singling out the left. I don't think um, the right is has has in any sense a better record um, on uh, racism and bigotry. Um, absolutely not. Um, in a sense, the opposite. My political home is the left. My natural political home is the left. And I'm interested in focusing on left anti-Semitism because we clean out our own home first. And it's always a, it's always upsetting when you, when you see people pointing over there, right? Look, over there on the right is, is the real problem. Yeah. And then people on the right, they point look, over there on the left is the real problem. And I, I don't, it's beyond me how people can do that. Because, of course, right here in my own political family is where I'm concerned to begin with. Yeah. Um, and if I say, well, look, it's over there. The real problem's over there. You know, our guys over here, yeah, there's some anti-Semitism, but they don't really mean it. They're basically good guys. But over there, they're really evil. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So... The focus for me on left anti-Semitism is because I focus on the, the world around me, actually. And um, the world around me thinks it's better than the right. And um, yeah. it it needs to take that seriously if, if it thinks that. Well, um, you know, we, we, we briefly spoke about um, sort of the, the fringe left. And earlier you mentioned the hashtag, it was a scam. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. The, the hashtag, it was a scam. Uh, has been, you know, trending repeatedly on Twitter over the years, and it's still used today by uh, bitter far-left conspiracy theorists. Can you tell us a bit about what this hashtag refers to, who uses it, and why do they use it? Well, I think um, that, that what it means is um, uh, Labour anti-Semitism was a scam. And, you know, they articulate in different ways. And, and if you articulate in one way, they'll say, no, that's absolute rubbish. What we meant was something else. What it refers to are the people who say that there was no particular Labour anti-Semitism problem or there was no political anti-Semitism in the Labour Party or that Corbyn's worldview and his uh, uh, um, claim that Hamas and Hezbollah are um, forces for justice across the Middle East... Uh, it didn't exist, it was never said, or it was never relevant or important. So the idea is that the whole thing was a scam, in other words, a conspiracy. There was a conspiracy to pretend that there was a problem of anti-Semitism in Corbyn's Labour Party, and that conspiracy happened for two reasons, one of which was to delegitimise criticism of Israel and to delegitimise de Corbyn's support for the Palestinians, and the other was to stop Corbyn from becoming prime minister because it was felt that he uh, threatened, um, I don't know what, he threatened uh, capitalism or he threatened the, the profits of the ruling class or something. I mean, that second element, of course, folds in the experience of the Labour Jews and their articulation of their experience into an old-fashioned... Uh, claim that they're in fact uh, supporters of capitalism, um, which is kind of more explicit and more easily recognisable than um, the more 
common charge, which is only that they are supporters of global imperialism <laughs> uh, via Zionism. Um, I, I think the real problem here, I think, is that I don't know how many, and I'd like to know how many, or I'd like to know how strong the movement is, but without doubt, there is quite a large number of people who experienced the whole Corbyn phenomenon, who were quite close to it and quite excited about it, and who now believe that it was defeated by the claim, the false claim that uh, there was something anti-Semitic about it. And in, it, what that comes very close to in many of them is um, what we've learned from this is that in the future, the thing that stands between us and progress or us and socialism or us and, quote, good things is uh, uh, Jewish people making this false allegation of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and of course, it's completely obvious to me that the idea that 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 the Jewish communities or the Zionists or you know Labour Jews stand between us and progress, us and socialism, us and good things, it's obvious to me how that's anti-Semitic. Yeah, and it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of stab in the back myth. Um, it's it's they have to explain why Corbyn lost, and they have to say that if it you know. It's kind of Scooby Doo. If it hadn't been for those meddling kids, if it hadn't been for that meddling Jewish, youth, are you too young to remember Scooby Doo? Um, <laughs> no, I know. If, if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for those Zionists, if it hadn't been for the, the Israeli state, then you know we'd now have socialism in this country, um, or we'd be on our way, or, or whatever. So it's a very dangerous. Uh, you know, there are cadres of people who have learnt that, who have learnt that between us and progress sits the Jewish communities. Yeah. However, they, they articulate it. Um, yeah. And of course, of course, that is the consolidation of a, of a foundation of a, a new anti-Semitic movement. Mm. David Hirsch, I really want to thank you for coming on. And before we sort of uh, wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question now that I ask all of our guests, which is if someone who is not Jewish approaches you and says that they want to help in the fight against anti-Semitism, where should they start? Oh, gosh. Um, haha. Um, I mean, I, I find it quite difficult. I mean, not because I find it quite difficult to know what anyone should do. Um, I mean, really, what I think people should do is they should educate themselves and they should be prepared to um, to make arguments, to stand up against um, false claims and to stand up against anti-Semitism and to put themselves in a position where they can, um, you know, defend uh, the institution or the Jews or democratic thinking against this kind, these kinds of anti-Semitic attacks. So the fundamental thing for me is that people should put themselves in a position where they can make an argument, where they understand what's going on and where they're at. And it's really difficult. I mean, honestly, it's really difficult to be up against these kind of belligerent, relentless, self-important people who think that they are good and they think that you are a racist, right? It's hard. So what I'm asking for people to do is to do something really hard, which is to put themselves in a position where they can 
deal with that really i mean i should say something about our big uh, project um at the moment which is the uh, london center for the study of contemporary anti-semitism and one thing that people who want to help can do is send us some money um uh, quite seriously we're having real trouble getting any kind of um significant funding which is quite frustrating at the moment um because what we're doing is we are um challenging anti-Semitism on campus and in academia. And, and what that means is that like, like everybody knows that there's a problem of anti-Semitism on campus. Everyone knows that. But most people are not in a position to do anything about it. And most people wouldn't know how to do something about it. And the only way one can do something about it is to fund academic research which can produce academic books and academic articles and academics and academic teaching. Uh, that's the only way one can do something about it. And it's a hugely expensive business. Um, anyway, we are bringing together networks of people and we're running seminars and we're uh, running a book series and a journal. And um, we are working very hard to... Um, try to get some research funding because of course we are in general locked out of the normal sources of research funding which think that what we do is you know pro apartheid blah 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 so um people can see our website on uh, london antisemitism.com right. and um and and just one other thing on that is of course campuses are the place where people create their own identities for the future. And uh, so what people learn on campus and the culture within which they create their own understanding of the world uh, is really important. And incidentally, uh, so of course is um, uh, looking after Jewish students and students who wish to challenge those um, uh, orthodox views and Again, only people on campus, only academics can do that. So for me, it's a really, really important project. And um, I'm just putting it out there that we need some proper, serious, heavyweight um, support. And uh, David, for people who want to find you personally, if you want to be found, where can they do that? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, um, at David Hirsch. Um, they can find me on Facebook, uh, something, 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 David Hirsch. And they can find the uh, website of the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism at londonantisemitism.com. And they can find my homepage uh, at Goldsmiths. Um, so if they Google my name and Goldsmiths, uh, University of London, they will find my homepage. All right. David Hirsch, thank you so much for coming on Podcast Against Antisemitism. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast Against Antisemitism. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a nice rating or email any feedback to podcast at antisemitism.org. Until next Thursday, stay safe. <laughs>